Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Howdy and welcome to bonus episode 83 of Wiki Shuffle. I'm Philip Sharman and I'm joined by Chris Wallace. Hello. And Ruth Bradley. Hello. And for the second time, Amy Walker. Hello again. And welcome back. We, just before we're recording, we're just about to get a story of where you're off to after we've finished this podcast, <laughs> Amy. Please explain. After we're done here, I've got to collect some stick insects from my parents. Because... They're going on holiday for five weeks, and I need to look after the little bugs. Oh, I thought the stick insects were going on. <laughs> <laughs> like left to the airport. They, they kind of are. They, they're coming to live with me for five weeks, so <laughs> it's like a holiday for him. So, so, so how many stick insects are we talking about here? Twelve. Twelve? Twelve? It's a colony. Yeah, and there's the sort of regular brown sticky-looking ones, and then there's like very smooth green sort of leafy-looking ones. So it's a nice, nice mix, if you mm. like your stick insects. I, I think I do. I think I do. I think I want to have a go on them. And they're really go, big. And go on them. <laughs> Come on. I just I don't want to feel one on my finger. Oh, no. No. You just made it worse. <laughs> I know your hands are small, but there's still a limit. Anyway, this is Wiki Shuffle. What do we do on Wiki Shuffle, Ruth? Shuffle the wicks. <laughs> Uh, she's new. She doesn't understand. <laughs> you do shuffle the wicks. It's good. Yeah, I like that better. Normally we shuffle the wicks, but on bonus episodes we don't shuffle the wicks. We choose the wicks. Amy's got another couple of selections for us that she's chosen from Wikipedia. And we're going to talk about those. There's nothing more to it than that. It's no more complicated. You know, don't go looking for some deeper meaning in what we're doing here. It is as simple as that. You've taken all the beauty out of it, Phil. Spilt it for everyone. I'm sorry. familiar with this story but not a lot familiar so I will look forward to learning more. Amy why did you choose the Dyatlov Pass incident? Just because it's one of those stories that people tell you as one of those really creepy true life things and initially I heard it I thought that that's ridiculous that can't be true and I started looking into it and it's the the more I find out about it the more I'm I'm still left thinking what what is this there's no not even close to being any kind of explanation. It's really fascinating and really creepy. It's, oh, uh, spooky times. Yeah. Spooky. So don't <laughs> expect any closure on this article is what we're saying. Uh, it's not going to get rounded off nicely. The Dyatlov Pass incident. Are we, are we happy with my pronunciation of Dyatlov? Yeah, that's how it's said, yeah. Dyatlov. The Dyatlov Pass incident was an event that took the lives of nine hikers in mysterious circumstances on the night of February the 2nd, 1959, in the northern Ural Mountains. 
The name Dyatlov Pass refers to the name of the group's leader, Igor Dyatlov, who, in whose honour the location of the events has later been named. A group was formed for a ski trek across the northern Urals, Urals, Urals. I feel like you need to settle on one. I do need to choose. <laughs> I need to pick Ural. the side here. Urals, Urals. Urals? Urals. Urals. Yeah, Urals. Let's go Urals. To be fair, no one's going to ring up and complain. If, we, if you do it wrong. <laughs> and if they do, that'll probably be a good thing. It's interaction, isn't it? So mm. just say it all Yeah, let us know. Wrong. Let us know how ridiculous we're being in our, in our pronunciation. A group was formed for a ski trek across the northern Urals in Sverdlovsk Oblast. The original group, led by Igor Dyatlov, consisted of eight men and two women. Most were students or graduates of the Ural Polytechnic Institute. And they were Igor Alexeyevich Dyatlov... Yuri Nikolaevich Durashenko, <laughs> Lyudmila Alexandrovna Dubinina, Dubinina. <laughs> Shall I stop this? Yeah. <laughs> so they were Igor, Yuri, Lyudmila, Yuri, Alexander, Zinaida, Rustem, Nikolai, Semyon, and Yuri. Three different Yuris. I don't know if that's pertinent. <laughs> Good. It's probably not, is it? No. Shall I move on? Yeah. The goal of the expedition was to reach Ortorton, a mountain 10 kilometres north of the site of the incident. This route in February was estimated as Category 3, the most difficult. Mm -hmm. All members were experienced in long ski tours and mountain expeditions. To summarise, because I feel as though my delivery may not have been <laughs> that effective so far, we've got, in 1959, a group of 10 students setting out in the wilds of Russia to go on a ski trip up a very difficult mountain. It's about, why, didn't, yeah. why didn't they just say that? The group arrived by train at Ivdel, a city at the centre of the northern province of Sverdlovsk Oblast in January. On the... <laughs> 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 the group arrived. Oh, a minute. Let's take a minute. The group arrived by train at Ivdel, a city at the centre of the northern province of Sverdlovsk Oblast, on January the twenty-fifth. <laughs> I did it right that time. <laughs> I know. I was expecting it not to be. <laughs> Fair enough. They oh, then pressure got too much. <laughs> They then took a truck to Vizhai, the last inhabited settlement so far north. They started their march towards Ortoten from Vizhai on January 27th. Can I just say, I think they were goose stepping. All <laughs> the way. All the way there. Yeah. It's impressive in or skis. Or in ski. <laughs> God, yeah. That is, although I suppose you could just put your, rest your ski up, couldn't you? We the just get wet. Yeah. Oh, no. Uh, the next day, one of the members, Yuri Yudin, was forced to go back due to illness. Was. The remaining group... <laughs> that's what they all said to him as well. The remaining... Yuri, yeah, I was. <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> I'm ill. The remaining group of nine people continued the trek, down to two Yuris now. Already. Diaries and cameras found around their last campsite made it possible to track the group's route up to the day preceding the incident. On January 31st, the group arrived at the edge of a highland area and began to prepare for climbing. In a wooded valley, they, ca they cached surplus food and equipment that would be used for the trip back. The following day, February the 1st, the hikers started to move through the pass. 
it seems they planned to get over the pass and make camp for the next night on the opposite side, but because of worsening weather conditions, snowstorms and decreasing visibility, they lost their direction and deviated west. When they realised their mistake, the group decided to stop and set up camp there on the slope of the mountain, rather than moving the 1.5 kilometres downhill to a forested area which would have offered some shelter from the elements. Yudin postulated that Dyatlov probably did not want to lose the altitude they had gained, or he decided to practice camping on the mountain slope. That's decent camping practice. practice. Mm. Yeah. 1.5 kilometres doesn't seem that far. Well, maybe they just didn't know. Did they know that there was a forested area there? I feel like they should have all been decided before they left. Sounds like it's going to be a found lost footage film. It is. Oh, yeah, you can't because it's set in the 1950s. Oh, there, is, there is a film. Oh, there was a film? Yeah, it was not very oh. good. No. Before leaving, Dyatlov had agreed he would send a telegram to their sports club as soon as the group returned to Vizhai. It was expected that this would happen no later than February 12th, but Dyatlov had told Yudin before his departure from the group that he expected to be longer. When the 12th passed and no messages had been received, there was no immediate reaction, as delays of a few days were common with such expeditions. It was not until the relatives of the travellers demanded a rescue operation on February the 20th that the head of the institute sent the first rescue groups, consisting of volunteer students and teachers. Later, the army and militia forces became involved, with planes and helicopters being ordered to join the rescue operation. So, at this point, they have went on a bit of a trek. Yep. And then, that's it. Gone. Just gone. Yeah. So they're expected eight <clears throat> days ago... People get a bit worried. and We'll best go look for them then. Do you know what? Early on, I don't know what's happened yet, but I think it was Yuri. The one Which that went one? back? The, the one that went back. I think that's, oh. that's what I Because they called them all. They called them all. Got well angry. I'll show them. <laughs> <laughs> on February 26th, the searchers found the group's abandoned and badly damaged tent on Kolat Seakal. The campsite baffled the search party. Mikhail Sharavin, the student who found the tent, said the tent was half torn down and covered with snow. It was empty and all the group's belongings and shoes had been left behind. Investigators said the tent had been cut open from inside. Eight or nine sets of footprints left by people who were wearing only socks, a single shoe or who, who were even barefoot, could be followed leading down towards the edge of a nearby woods on the opposite side of the pass, 1.5 kilometres to the northeast. <laughs> However, after 500 metres, these tracks were covered with snow. At the forest's edge, under a large cedar, the searchers found the visible remains of a small fire along with the first two bodies, Krivonyshenko and Doroshenko shoeless and dressed only in their underwear. The branches of the tree were broken up to five metres high, suggesting that one of the skiers had climbed to look for something. Between the cedar and the camp, the searchers found three more corpses, Dyatlov, Kolmogorova and Slobodin, who seemed to have died in poses suggesting that they were attempting to return to the tent. They were found separately at distances of 300, 480 and 630 metres from the tree. Searching for the remaining four travellers took more than two months. They were finally found on May 4th under four metres of snow in a ravine 75 metres further into the woods from the cedar tree. These four were better dressed than the others and there were signs that those who had died first had apparently relinquished their clothes to the others. Zolotryov was wearing Dubininia's faux fur coat and hat while Dubininia's foot was wrapped in a piece of Krivoshenko's wool pants. <laughs> <laughs> I think it means trousers. Dig my wool pants. <laughs> 
Another notable find besides the four remaining hikers was a camera around Zolotaryov's neck. Put it on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> so they're all dead and they're all spread out over great distances and in poses suggesting that they were what sort God of knows pose what. suggests that they were trying to return back to the tent? <laughs> <laughs> so, a point and a, a walk? Or a mouthing uh, tent? <laughs> a legal inquest started immediately after finding the first five bodies. A medical examination found no injuries which might have led to their deaths, and it was eventually concluded that they had all died of hypothermia. Slobodin had a small crack in his skull, but it was not thought to be a fatal wound. An examination of the four bodies which were found in May shifted the narrative as to what had occurred during the incident. Three of the ski hikers had fatal injuries. Thibaut Brignoles had major skull damage and both Dubonina and Zolotarev had major chest fractures. According to Dr. Boris Vozhad... According to a doctor, the force required <laughs> to cause such damage would have been extremely high, comparing it to the force of a car crash. Notably, the bodies had no external wounds related to the bone fractures, as if they had been subjected to a high level of pressure. However, major external injuries were found on Dubonina, who was missing her tongue, Ooh. eyes, part of the lips, as well as facial tissue and fragments of skull bone. What? How does that happen? She also had extensive skin <laughs> maceration on the hands. It was claimed that Dubonina was found lying face down in a small stream that ran under the snow and that her, and that her external injuries were in line with putrefaction in a wet oh. environment and were unlikely to be related to her death. Okay, so, so the, the water sucked her eyes out, basically, is that what they're saying? <laughs> <laughs> so she went a bit mouldy in yeah. the water, but probably there were fish and stuff. Went a bit mouldy in the water. <laughs> she went to bed mouldy in the water. What? <laughs> there was initial speculation that the indigenous Mansi people might have attacked and murdered the group for encroaching upon their lands, but investigation indicated that the nature of their deaths did not support this hypothesis. The hikers' footprints alone were visible and they showed no sign of hand to hand struggle. To dispel the theory of an attack by the indigenous Mansi people, Dr. Boris Doctor stated that the fatal injuries of the three bodies could not have been caused by another human being because the force of the blows had been too strong and no soft tissue had been damaged. Ah, uh, werewolves. I have to say, Dr. Boris, Dr. Boris does sound like a werewolf. Forensic radiation tests had shown high doses of radioactive contamination on the clothes of a few victims. What? Citation needed for that one. Is anyone feeling enlightened as if they know what's happened? Mystery happened. Mm. Giant fart. <laughs> Giant radioactive fart. <laughs> Answer for everything. Blew off all their clothes. That's why Yuri had to go home. Blew strips of clothes off one onto other people's feet. <laughs> <laughs> and it ruptured their like. Made them leave of their own accord because of the stench. <laughs> Are you disgusting? <laughs> no, the tent, it happened in the tent and blew them all out into scattering different places. Some of them with like injuries because they were the closest. Because it was a big fire. To the explosion. <laughs> yeah. These are people's lives you're talking about. <laughs> Radioactive parts. One of them was former police officer Lev Ivanov, who led the official inquest in 1959. 
1990, he published an article which included his admission that the investigation team had no rational explanation for the accident. He also stated that after his team reported that they had seen flying spheres, he then received direct orders from high-ranking regional officials to dismiss the claim. Probably for the best. Werewolf UFOs. It keeps widening, doesn't it? And some secret weapon testing as well. That'd be a stupid weapon. Although it could have been a fart weapon. (laughs) (laughs) Let's not rule out the possibility of a fart weapon. (laughs) Weaponised bottoms. (laughs) That's how we'll win the Cold War. (laughs) (laughs) In 2000, a regional television company produced the documentary film The Mystery of the Atlov Pass. I used pass instead of pass that time. I'm such a Midlander. Flip-flopping all over the place. Flip-flopping everywhere. The mystery of the Dyatlov Pass. Anna Metvieva published a fiction documentary novella of the same name. A large part of the book includes broad quotations from the official case, diaries of victims, interviews with searchers and other documentaries collected by the filmmakers. Despite its fictional narrative, Matieva's book remains the largest source of documentary material ever made available to the public regarding the incident. A Dyatlov Foundation was founded in Yekaterinburg. <laughs> <laughs> That's where we live. No, I don't anymore, but that's where you live. With the help of the Ural State Technical University, led by Yuri (laughs) Kunchevich. Let's not giggle. I mean, yeah, he's the 17th Yuri in this story so far, (laughs) but the fact that his surname is Kuntsevich is not in and of itself funny. (laughs) The Foundation's stated aim is to convince current Russian officials to reopen the investigation of the case and to maintain the Dyatlov Museum to preserve the memory of the dead hikers. Here's some potential explanations then. An avalanche is one theory. Pay attention to these theories because I want to know everyone's preferred theory when we reach the conclusion Preferred? Here. Your preferred theory as to what you think happened. Okay. Farts. You're Come to it with one. an open mind. Don't just, <laughs> don't just decide it's definitely farts before you've heard the other possible <laughs> options. The theory that an avalanche caused the hikers' deaths, while initially popular, has since been questioned. Reviewing the sensationalist Yeti hypothesis... <laughs> yeah... American sceptic author Benjamin Radford suggests as more plausible, and this is Benjamin Radford's words here, that the group woke up in a panic and cut their way out of the tent either because an avalanche had covered the entrance of their tent or because they were scared that an avalanche was imminent. Better to have a potentially repairable slit in a tent than risk being buried alive in it under tons of snow. They were poorly clothed because they had been sleeping and ran to the safety of the nearby woods where the trees would help slow the oncoming snow. In the darkness of night, they got separated into two or three groups. One group made a fire, hence the burned hands, while the others tried to return to the tent to recover their clothing. But it was too cold and they all froze to death before they could locate their tent in the darkness. At some point, some of the clothes may have been recovered or swapped from the dead, but at any rate, the group of four whose bodies were most severely damaged were caught in an avalanche and buried under 13 feet of snow, more than enough to account for the compelling natural force the medical examiner described. That all does sound pretty plausible, doesn't it? it except it one bit where it says that oh, they were poorly clothed because they'd been sleeping. If I was camping in a in a snowy mountain, I wouldn't just get in my tent and just strip off. I'm like, right, I'm going to bed now. I don't know, there was ten of them in the tent, though, so it would get pretty sweaty and, and you're insulated yeah. in with the snow mm. and everything. I don't know, yeah. I think it would get... And also, uh, if you, the less clothing you have on, the better in that sort of scenario because you... Um, your body warmth, your body heat mingles, doesn't it? Whereas if you have too many clothes on, you kind of insulate your coldness in. And you've seen what happens in Love Island. I have seen what happens. <laughs> Bow chicka wow wow. <laughs> a lot of that. 
That's probably what they were getting it on. Russian lovemaking in the snow. (laughs) (laughs) That face. It was most search term on the internet. (laughs) (laughs) It all sounds pretty plausible, but here's the evidence contradicting the avalanche theory. The location of the incident did not have any obvious signs of an avalanche taking place. That's quite a big one. That's a fairly big one, that one. An avalanche would have left certain patterns and debris distributed over a wide area. The bodies found within 10 days of the event were covered with very shallow layer of snow, and had there been an avalanche of sufficient strength to sweep away the second party, these bodies would have been swept away as well this would have caused more serious and different injuries in the process and would have damaged the tree line one of the main things about avalanches is snow and a lot of it mountainologist chris wallace there over a hundred expeditions to the region were held since the incident and none of them have ever reported conditions that might create an avalanche a study of the area using up-to-date terrain related physics revealed that the location was entirely unlikely for such an (laughs) avalanche to have occurred so no An analysis of the terrain, the slope and the incline indicates that even if there could have been a very specific avalanche that circumvents the other criticisms, its trajectory would have bypassed the tent. Dyatlov was an experienced skier and the much older Alexander Zolotarov was studying for his master's certificate in ski instruction and mountain hiking. Neither of these two men would have been likely to camp anywhere in the path of a possible avalanche. Uh, I'm not on board with avalanches. No. Back to farts, it is. Farts. Or Yeti. Infrasound. Yeti (laughs) fart. Another hypothesis popularised by Donny Eicher's 2013 book, Dead Mountain, is that wind going around Holachal Mountain created a Karman Vortex Street, which can produce infrasound capable of inducing panic attacks in humans. That sounds altogether weird. Interesting and weird. Though that still doesn't explain the people with the injuries. Military tests. Some people believe it was a military accident which was then covered up. There are records of parachute mines being tested by the Russian military in the area around the time the hikers were there. Parachute mines detonate a metre or two before they hit the ground and produce similar damages to those experienced by the hikers. There are also glowing orbs reported in the sky in that general vicinity possibly caused by such ordnance. This theory uses animals to account for the missing nose, tongue and leg of certain victims. Wait, wait. Who's missing a leg? Yeah, what? (laughs) People believe the bodies were moved. Photos of the tent show that it was apparently erected incorrectly, something that these experienced hikers are unlikely to have done. Paradoxical undressing. Now, I've heard of this, and I have to say, this was my gut reaction when I first read the details. The Science Times posited that the hikers' deaths were caused by hypothermia, which could induce a behaviour known as paradoxical undressing, in which hypothermic subjects removed their clothes in response to perceived feelings of burning warmth. That six out of nine hikers died of hypothermia is undisputed. The hypothesis doesn't address why the hikers fled the tent in the first place. The temperature inside the tent would not have been low enough to induce paradoxical undressing. Mm. So then we're on to Yeti. Ah, sold. <laughs> the 2014 Discovery Channel special, Russian Yeti, the killer lives, <laughs> explored claims that the Dyatlov group was killed by an enraged Russian Yeti. Maybe he was enraged by farts. <laughs> Russian Yeti begins with the premise that the injuries sustained by the skiers were so grave and extraordinary that could only have been inflicted by an inhumanly strong creature. The show focuses on Ludmilla Dubnina's missing tongue and claims that something must have ripped it out of her. However, Radford states, As it happens, a tongue-eating Yeti... (laughs) It's by far the least likely explanation. (laughs) 
The missing parts aspect of this case is a familiar one to skeptics and has been invoked in countless other unsolved mysteries including the chupacabra, cattle mutilations, satanic animal sacrifices and aliens. Typically a mystery is mongered by those unfamiliar with or who intentionally ignore ordinary predation and decomposition. Russian Yeti would have us believe that the nine skiers had an encounter with a Yeti which they not only saw and photographed but stalked them and yet none of the skiers mentioned anything else about the Yeti. In fact, if Lebecki is to be believed, their encounter with a Yeti was such an insignificant event that they didn't even mention it at all in their journals. At the end of the show, Lebecki admits that he found no real evidence that the Yeti exists. <laughs> well, I've yet to find anything that's more concrete than Yeti. Fatty Yetis is all we've got. So that's what we'll go with. Job done. <laughs> <I'll be late. laughs> Amy, what's your take on this? I, I honestly don't know. It's honestly every time someone comes and writes more about it, it's throw arguments against why certain things couldn't account for it and why certain things couldn't in the end. It just kind of goes around and around. And I don't know, I think maybe something a bit untoward with the military doing testing in the area is plausible. I don't think we're ever going to get an answer for this and it's why people keep coming back to it because there's just yeah. no explanation outweighs any of the others apart from the Yeti one which is obviously the closest to being mm. correct <coughs> apart from it mine doesn't even well, mention put that in the Ruth's yeah. farting yeah. hypothesis it's good well, <laughs> no, well this is why you, you revisit add, these yeah. things to add more critical thinking to the should I add it? no <laughs> to the Wikipedia page <laughs> no you shall not oh. So I liked that last article. Thank you, Amy. What I would say about it, though, didn't quite have enough dead bodies in it. What you got for us next? A few more dead bodies. Hooray! <laughs> Specifically, we've got the catacombs of Paris. Yes. Morbid. One of the biggest mass graves in the world. So, something cheery. <laughs> the catacombs of Paris are underground ossuaries in Paris, France, which hold the remains of over six million people. A lot. Whoa. In a small part of the ancient Mines of Paris tunnel network, located south of the former city gate, Barrière d'Enfer, the Gate of Hell, beneath Rue de la Tombissoire. The ossuary was founded when city officials were faced with two simultaneous problems, a series of cave-ins starting in 1774 and overflowing cemeteries. Nightly processions of bones from 1786 to 1788 transferred remains from cemeteries to the reinforced tunnels and more remains were added in later years. The underground cemetery became a tourist attraction on a small scale from the early 19th century and has been open to the public on a regular basis since 1874. It doesn't seem very touristy. Come and have a look at all of our dead. Yeah, look. But they did it in a really pretty way. They didn't just lob mm. them in there, did they? They were like... They sort of decorated yeah. with bodies. Yeah, but I feel like if I did that in my flat, then my landlord would not appreciate. <laughs> You're correct in yeah, that. Yeah, you don't do that. <laughs> follow that thought through and mm, don't decorate don't do your flat with the bones of the dead. The bones of the <laughs> I feel as though I shouldn't Just need the bones to tell you this. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, I assume these, I guess, city councillors and planners had permission from the Paris landlord to do it. That's The Paris landlord? Yeah, that's probably the... Uh, <laughs> The main stumbling block. Mm -hmm. One would hope so, because if you haven't, you're going to lose your deposit. No mistake. <laughs> I like the way it says nightly processions, as if they were doing it under the cover of darkness. It's like, oh, don't let them know we're moving their nanas to... Uh... <laughs> 
hold up the town. What can we do to make the moving of six million dead bodies into underground tunnels in fancy decorated patterns even creepier? Do it at night. (laughs) (laughs) Let's reinforce our town with nanas. I don't think they're treating it as reinforcement. These aren't load-bearing corpses. Well, it said it was to solve two problems. Yeah. Well, they reinforced the tunnels, but don't they reinforce them with... With bones. I think they Tunnels can't collapse if they're full of Bones. I think that was the idea. Yeah. Job done. <laughs> <laughs> Although the ossuary covers only a small section of the underground, Les Carrières de Paris, the quarries of Paris, Parisians today often refer to the entire tunnel network as the catacombs. I like the way they say they're buried under there. They're not really, mm. are they? They're sort of like delicately stacked in a very um, artistic and fashion. It's like, did you get permission? Do you need permission from people's yeah. families to do that? And you'd assume if they were buried, they'd be all together but there's like entire walls of leg bones entire walls of skulls it's like they're all mashed up all over the place I guess they didn't know who they belonged to well yes if they would take them out of graves they could have just put them in a sack labelled Dave (laughs) (laughs) Dave Gubbins unless they take them all out dump them on the wagon then go Oh, crap, you know what we forgot to do? So they were taking them from cemeteries, so they were just probably mass graving already, is that what they're saying? Possibly, like, Have you yeah. ever seen Poltergeist? Oh, yes, Where they move the headstones though. but not the graves. It's like the other way around, um, they move the graves. Paris's earliest burial grounds were to the southern outskirts of the Roman-era Left Bank City, in ruins after the Roman Empire's 5th century fall and the ensuing Frankish invasions. Parisians eventually abandoned this settlement for the marshy right bank, From the 4th century, the first known settlement there was on higher grounds around Saint-Étienne Church and right bank urban expansion began in earnest after other ecclesiastical landowners filled in the marshlands from the late 10th century. Thus, instead of burying its dead away from inhabited areas as per usual human customs, the Paris right bank settlement began its life with cemeteries at its very centre. This burial ground filling the land between today's Rue Saint-Denis, Rue de la Ferronnière and Rue de la Lingerie (laughs) (laughs) had become the city's principal cemetery. To make room for more burials, the long dead were exhumed and their bones packed into the roofs and walls of Charnier galleries built to the inside of the cemetery walls. By the end of the 18th century, the central burial ground was a two-metre-high mound of earth filled with centuries of Parisian dead from disease, famine and wars, and it was not until the late 18th century that it was decided to create three new burial grounds on the outskirts of the city and to condemn all existing Paris cemeteries within city limits. Sounds horrendous. It's really, really grim. Yeah. What do you do with so all these like, people? like, we'll bury you for a bit, then we're going to bag you up and stuff in the in, attic. Sorry, Nana. <laughs> we'll bury you for a bit. Stop moaning. Probably enough to get you to heaven, however that's supposed to work. <laughs> The needs to eliminate Les Innocents gained urgency from May 30th, 1780, when a basement wall in the property adjoining the cemetery gave way under the weight of the mass grave oh. behind it. Just having your dinner, and then like, Nana! <laughs> 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 The mine renovation and cemetery closures were both issues within the jurisdiction of the police prefect, Lieutenant General Alexandre Lenoir, who had been directly involved in the creation of a mine inspection service. Lenoir was firmly behind an idea of moving Parisian dead to the newly renovated subterranean passageways after deciding to further renovate the Tommy Soir passageways for their future role as an underground sepulchre in late 1785. A well within a walled property above one of the principal subterranean passageways was dug to receive 
received Les Innocents unearthed remains, and the property itself was transformed into a sort of museum for all the headstones, sculptures and other artefacts recuperated from the former cemetery. The route between Les Innocents and Close de Tombe Issoire became a nightly procession of black cloth-covered wagons carrying the millions of Parisian dead. It would take two years to empty the majority of Paris cemeteries. I feel like maybe they should have made it a bit less grim. I suppose they're doing it at night. It was probably just to try and keep it on the high-vis, ground. High-vis like, wagons. High-vis wagons. <laughs> Taking your nanas and dumping them in the ditch. Yeah, but maybe not like that. That's thing at the time. <laughs> Taking your nanas, digging in the ditch. Good that you're keeping those oral traditions alive. Yes, I'm trying. It's <laughs> a lot of wagons. It's, it's a lot of nanas. <laughs> it's a lot of nanas. All those nanas that fought the French Revolution. <laughs> <laughs> The catacombs in their first years were an unorganised bone repository. <laughs> That's a horrible thing to call someone. You're an unorganised bone repository. <laughs> In many ways, that's correct. <laughs> it works on a lot of levels, that insult. <laughs> Louis-Étienne Hericard de Toury, head of the Paris Mine Inspection Service from 1810, undertook renovations that would transform the underground caverns into a visitable mausoleum. So to start with, it was just piles of bones. They've got so much to do with they just loaded up all the earth and bone and just dumped it underground and that... Well, let somebody else worry about that. Hmm. Thankfully, Louis Etienne came along and he was that somebody. Oh, we make it all pretty. <laughs> what accent was that? <laughs> it's a me. Mario, we make it all pretty. It seems unlikely that that's how he would have spoken. So is this just a massive case of someone with OCD seeing a big pile of bones and going, no, no, this won't do? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Wanting to be among them a little bit more than is normal. <laughs> oh, I like the look of them. Imagine if all the eyes were lined up. Oh, that would be better, wouldn't it? Oh, oh. no. There's, they created a room where they just had all the um, malformed bits. Come look at this misshapen well, head. It's, it's and like these tiny hands. In addition to directing the stacking of skulls and femurs into the patterns seen in the catacombs today, he used the cemetery decorations he could find to complement the walls of bones. Also created were, was a room dedicated to the display of various minerals found under Paris, and another showing various skeletal deformities found during the catacombs' creation and renovation. He also added monumental tablets and archways bearing inscriptions. It was walled from the rest of Paris left bank's already extensive underground tunnel network. Pass and you shall die. Things like that. I think there are... Turn back, turn back. Bits like that down there that describe it as the kingdom of the dead and... Mm. In 2004, police discovered a fully equipped movie theatre in one of the caverns. It was equipped with a giant cinema screen, seats for the audience, projection equipment, film reels, a fully stocked bar and a complete restaurant with tables and chairs. The source of its electrical power and the identity of those responsible remain unknown. Wow, I want to go to that secret cinema. Have you been, Amy? Not yet. Uh, We're planning to sometime soon because it's really awesome and creepy and weird. Yeah, I'd like to go. You, you can't go in much of it. Like A lot of it is mm. blocked off and the police regularly arrest people trying to get in there because it's apparently quite dangerous. And there is that portal to hell out. to worry about as well, mm. of yes, course. So you've got to, you know, it's good. The police yeah. should stop people from walking through portals into hell. It's one of their primary functions. That was episode 83. Oh, no, there was a lot of death there, wasn't it? I'm not sure that we quite treated it with the gravitas that those human beings deserved. Oh, well, I feel sad now for all the nanas. Sorry, all the nanas. Sorry, all the rushkies. All the hikers. But the moral of the story is... Don't go skiing. Don't die. Oh, if you're going to go skiing, 
just don't do it around yetis or farts or farts <laughs> or Russian military. All of those things, which I don't think it's our job to tell you this. You should already know it. What is it our job to do? Not fart in the tent. Um, my job is to do words when you tell me to. So <laughs> say goodbye, Chris. Goodbye for now. <laughs> well done. You're good at your job. Thanks, Amy. You're the one what did this. Yes. You brought these along and we're very grateful for it. Why not use this time to give yourself another plug in your endeavours and tell people where they can find your stuff? Yeah, of course. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at amazing underscore Amy underscore W. You can also find my website at www.trans-scribe.blogspot.com. Um, I try and put up articles fairly regular on there as well. We'll send some links to on the show notes for the episodes as well, of awesome. course. And I'll link to these episodes as well. Bit of cross-promotion. Yeah, there. that's what it's called. Yeah. And characteristically professional of us. <laughs> Content. Don't use the C words. <laughs> don't use the B words. I forgot, they're the only two rules that we have, is that we don't use the B word or the C word. I forgot to mention that rule at the beginning. Which B word and C word? Banter and content. So the other B and C words. They're fine, fine, yeah. Okay. Yeah, no problem with them. Like Ballyhoo and Cockwobbler. <laughs> <laughs> is that your crime-fighting duo? Yeah. <laughs> the Adventures of Ballyhoo and Cockwobbler! <laughs> Very good. Thank you for listening. We will be back to normal next week when Jack will theoretically return. Whatever. Yeah, we, we, <laughs> we, we've had enough of Ruth. Thrown but... back on the catacomb pile. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, like so many unloved nanas. <laughs> but, but thanks, Ruth. We'll have to have you back at some point. Maybe. We don't, we don't have to, <laughs> but we might. Um, we've had an audience for this recording as well for the first time mm. ever, which has been interesting. Thanks, Martin and Ashley, for being our audience today. Hello, I've only been here for ten minutes. Don't make, make, <laughs> make it sound like you're more invested. So we'll see you again next week. Bye. 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 Good evening. I'm Craig Seckler. In 1959... One of the greatest unexplained events in Russia's history took place. Nine students, all under the age of 25, went hiking in a remote wilderness in Western Russia called the Ural Mountains. Weeks later, their bodies were found, mangled beyond recognition. All had suffered massive internal injuries. Some of the students were found partially clothed. The campsite had been destroyed. Perhaps most perplexing, Investigators found one set of footprints more than twice the size of an average man's. A warning. What you're about to see contains disturbing images from the investigation into who or what killed the hikers. Yeti <laughs> Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.